chicka chicka boom 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 chicka boom is not a chase i can't even believe you boom chicka boom is a bar (laughs) mark went to in 1996 (laughs) (laughs) this is unorthodox the universe's leading jewish podcast i'm your host mark oppenheimer joined as ever by tablet deputy editor stephanie butnick Sorry, I just had to close the door on my cat. Hello. And senior writer, Leah Leibowitz. 18 days of the Omer and going strong. And today we bring you a conversation with Michael O'Loughlin, host of the podcast Plague, Untold Stories of AIDS and the Catholic Church. Little pick-me-up for uh, our quarantined universe. Can I deliver some good news to the J. Crew? You may. We would love we nothing need it. more. Now more than ever. <laughs> Thank you. I was waiting for your dispensation. Things are really swimming along in Oppenshire Manor. Um, first of all, I am like days away, like 10 or 12 pages away from finishing a draft of my book about the Tree of Life shooting. Amazing. So that feels good. Can I say something like that just occurred to me? I remember us talking about this way back when in the fabled old olden days of like November. Yeah. And you said, no, man, like March and April and May, that's when I'm going to write the book. And for a second there, I was like, wait a second. It hasn't been March or April yet. And then I remembered, yes, it has. I've just been sitting at home <laughs> for the last 78 days. Right. The goal Today. was I'm going to finish a draft by end of April, share it with you guys who will give me some feedback, and then by Memorial Day, get a, a, a copy off to my editor. So yes, it, it's going to soon go out to the elite high council of, uh, of readers. Um, but when you're writing about mass murder during the day, at night, you need to really let loose. So as you know, I've been just tearing up the streaming services, watched uh, the movie High Fidelity, the TV show High Fidelity, which, by the way, I've assigned it to the J. Crew. We're going to get to it like next week or the week after. So wait, what order do I need to do? Old movie, new show. I would absolutely go John Cusack movie and then Zoe Kravitz. But I don't have to read the book. I don't got that kind of time. The book is optional. You get the spark note, Stephanie. The book's great. You'll be able to fake your way through the discussion if all you do is watch the movie. I also did finally bite the bullet and watch the Netflix show Unorthodox, the show that has gotten us thousands of new Facebook followers because they think we're related. They're so confused. People keep tagging us on Twitter. They're just so confused. <laughs> yeah, they they listen to you and be like, wow, that former Satmar girl really bloomed <laughs> outside of the community. Look at her dropping all these modern day lingo as being cool. It, it has been a source of confusion, mostly for producer Josh Cross, who like mans the social media, the media for us. And he just keeps putting posts in the Facebook group. Like the questions to get into our group has gotten so specific. <laughs> On which podcast episode did Stephanie put up a mezuzah? If you don't know the answer, you could not get in the show. Because the idea there's like thousands of people who watch that show who are trying to get in our Facebook group. Producer Josh Cross, have we gotten any quality new fans, do you think, from people who accidentally stumbled into the podcast and realized we're actually the good unorthodox? Well, I I mean, I have been fending off more applications to the group than I've ever seen, and it's insane. There's probably been three or four that I was like, you know this isn't the show, and they were like, oh, but I'll check it out. (laughs) And I've seen one or two whose names escape me right now stick around. Yeah, Mostly no, because they're really disappointed that The only one with a shaved head is me. (laughs) But you know the funny thing, Mark? Do you remember this? When we were were way, way back um, in the early days, we were trying to figure out what to call the podcast. And you said unorthodox. And I said... No, you know, there's that memoir of that name. Everyone knows that already. Like, I I basically said, like, oh, there's that memoir. Right. Like, and I was talking about the book version of this. <laughs> it was Devorah Feldman's like, memoir all, had just come there out. you have it. And oh, my totally argument was, like, everyone knows that. what that is. And obviously, <laughs> the joke is on 
I don't know what the, who the joke is on now because everyone's like, they stole your name. And I'm like, yeah, they did. Well, Ed, we, we, we took it and now she's taking it this back by going all streaming service. Listen, I us. still think we should have gone with my original suggestion at the time four years ago, which was Tiger King. <laughs> there would have been no problems there. <laughs> the other thing that's going on since it's all streaming all the time uh, when not writing about mass murder is Rebecca and I have been working our way through her syllabus of 80s teen movies. And so we got to Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which is in some ways the act text, like one of the, you know, 1981 or 82, very, very early. And it's, it's really, it's a powerful thing to go back to those days. It's like Havruta study. It's like we're learning, we're learning this stuff together. Can I just say, Mark watching 80s and 90s movies is the absolute best Mark because I get texts. This is, I have to, to give the timestamp. <laughs> this is like 11.55 p.m. Okay. Fast Times at Ridgemont High fan. And I write back, you know it. Mark writes back, just watch it with R. I'm clearly a Brad Hamilton. Are you a Damone or a Spicoli? I'm like, oh, Spicoli, of course. I mean, what kind of well, kind okay, of heresy is that? Uh, it's funny that like I know you guys do talk without me, but I'm glad to know that this is the content of it. Yeah, you're not missing much. Yeah. You're really not missing you, much. You would have clicked unsubscribe. Um, but listen, so there's everyone's syllabus. Go to into the 80s movies. Go to High Fidelity. Watch Unorthodox. And Liel... We have to talk on Orthodox because... Because this Thursday, April 30th, as you're listening to this here very show, if you're listening on the day we drop, which you damn well should, I will be moderating a panel called Un, with the uncrossed out, Orthodox, Unpacking Stereotypes and Hollywood's Depiction of Hasidim, with two actual... Get this. It's amazing. This is a thought that has never occurred to Hollywood. Talk to actual Hasidim about Hasidic life. This is a brand new concept. It's very revolutionary. I'll be joined by the great A.D. <laughs> Drizzen and my good, good friend, Rabbi Mordechai Lightstone, to talk about this show that we uh, may or may not have some issues with. But join us, and it'll be awesome. So I haven't watched the show yet. Every single person I know, Jewish or not, seems to have watched this show. So I think I'm going to do it this weekend. I've been pretty busy in Mad Men. That's like my happy place. <laughs> oh, it's the same thing then. You don't have to watch this if you've seen Mad Men. It's the same alcohol, oppressed women, strange clothes. It's the same thing. Uh, so this is this Thursday, April 30th at 9 Eastern. If you want to join us for this glorious online Zoom, go to un slash orthodox dot splash that. That's S-P-L-A-S-H-T-H-A-T dot com and register to join us for this fascinating conversation. So top that butt, Nick. What are you doing with your time? So at the beginning of quarantine or back in March, the, one of our front light bulbs went out. And I was like, you know what? There's another one. We'll be fine. <laughs> then, How many Jewish podcasters does it take to change a light bulb? Well, so this is this is the question. So then the other day, the bathroom light went out. And we were like, you know, there's sort of like a mirror light too. Like, we'll, we'll be fine. And then whatever day. <laughs> and, so then, and then Sunday morning, we go to turn on the, our main light, our living room light. That's like the one. And it doesn't go on. And so we are sort of like how like we sort of like we were both doing our own like internal tally of like how long we could go without any light in our apartment. And then finally, I like realized. So basically, we spent all of yesterday like finding the light bulb. We have two light bulbs. So we, could, we had to like really triage where we were going to replace the light bulbs. And so we decided we were going to use both of our light bulbs in the main one. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it was a really, it was a really dramatic, traumatic day. Are you sure that it's not that Ben is just gaslighting you? Just figure out, like, can he keep no, no, turning no, no, the light down and down, no, and you'll never did, know? 
we did. Um, so then I went to the basement. I found a ladder. Like I brought the ladder up. There was just like a lot going on. And then finally, <laughs> it's like one of those light things where you have to like screw the bottom piece. And then there's another piece and then the whole thing comes down. And then you have to. Anyway, it was I, I just I had this moment of like, oh, we are not the people I thought we were. Like we are different people now. We're missing out on the greatest home improvement show ever made. I just want to say, per what Stephanie said before, we just got an application to the Facebook group. And when it says, what's your favorite episode, they put the one where the two Satmar guys go to Berlin. (laughs) (laughs) News of the Jews. This is just a little a little tidbit just to show for people who think that Jews are smart and cunning and therefore control the world behind the scenes. Las Vegas Mayor Carolyn Goodman has offered up her city to see how many die without social distancing. This made the national news. She told CNN that she's happy to have her city be a test case to see if social distancing measures actually save lives. She's just wants everyone to go back to gambling and bumping into each other on the street. As it happens, Carolyn Goodman is a former head of the local Jewish Federation of Las Vegas's women's division. So, you know, it starts it starts with the Federation. And before you know it, you're sacrificing your citizens to COVID-19. But Mark, let me tell you how perfect this is that this kind of gospel should come out of Las Vegas. Because basically, look, during this quarantine, I've lost a ton of money. I'm eating all the time. I drink in the afternoon. <laughs> I have no idea what time or day it is, and I don't ever want to go outside. So it's basically like I'm in Vegas already for the last, like, two (laughs) months. It's perfect. It is funny, like, the amount of people who shared this story and were like, oh, Goodman, uh uh-oh. Like, do some Googling, like, hope maybe it's not. And we're like, nope, she's one of us. We've had interns who have spent the whole semester doing nothing but just checking out the Jewish status of stupid people on the web. Just trying to figure out who's a Jew, who's not a Jew. Uh, You know who's not a Jew? I hope, the Minnesota high school students who mocked Jews in their TikTok video. They were doing some dance to some song, and according to the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, they were sharing a video titled Me and the Boys on the Way to Camp, which photoshops them dancing in a Nazi boxcar and happily skipping into Auschwitz. Now, the first three times I read this, I totally missed the best part of it, which is that as penance, they were assigned by their school, Nicolette High School in Nicolette, Minnesota, to write a research paper titled Hitler's Final Solution at Auschwitz. Cruel and unusual punishment. Which, I mean, there's no, there's no more <laughs> like, like, like there's no more 2020 teen story than like a Holocaust TikTok insult video <laughs> and you have to write a term paper. as like, I don't know. I mean, it's just. So what they're going to do is go to Wikipedia and Google Hitler Become full-fledged neo-Nazis. And boil that down into a... F- <laughs> Go straight to the alt-right. Like, what does the five-page paper on Hitler's final solution look like? Like, is it bullet points? I mean, how do you how do you even decide what to keep in and well, what not to like keep in? Well, you know, it's like when you write a book report about a book you haven't read, and you're like, Hitler's final solution was his final idea. <laughs> he had tried other things, yeah. but until the final solution, none of them had worked. So his, so finally, <laughs> he decided to make the final solution. And then the, and you double-space that, and you basically have, that's a full page. I don't think there's any better way to get people to really actually hate Jews than to make them write a five-page <laughs> research paper. Because, you know, these kids are just cracking a dumb joke before, but now it's like, hold on, maybe we should actually hate Jews because now we have to write a paper and nobody <laughs> likes that. So I read this news story in the New York Times called The Video Diary of Anne Frank. And I have to say, when I was reading this, I had a very strong sense of deja vu. And here's the here's sort of the subhead. 
What if Anne Frank had been a vlogger? That's the premise behind a new online series aimed at young people living in isolation right now. And I was like, didn't we just do this thing? We talked about the thing with the girl and the videos. And I was like, oops, no, that was Ava. That was a totally right. different thing. This is actually a selfie film video series about Anne Frank. And there's an actress who plays her. And it's sort of a, a series of short films. And it was it's created for the Anne Frank House Museum's website. So it's like it's it has their stamp of approval. And the series is titled OMGSS. <laughs> I can't. This strikes me as the stupidest thing in the world. First of all, it was a bunch of museum curators who sat down and said, how are we going to reach the kids? How are we going to reach the youth? Oh, I know. We'll make Anne Frank a vlogger, which, by the way, wasn't a word that I thought anyone used anymore. I remember the first vloggers about 15 years ago, and it was like posting stuff about yourself. It was like a blog, but with videos. And then they hired some actress to portray her, and she's doing little five to 10 minute videos. So if you're a kid and you're home in quarantine and you go to the Anne Frank House's website and stream these, for some reason we can't stream them in America. It's blocked. It's it's geotagged so Americans can't watch them. Then- Number one, you're going to think that Anne Frank had an iPhone. And number two, are they going to get to the end of the story? Like, what's the last episode of this? I imagine that they get found. Like, I don't think they, it takes them to Bergen-Belsen. I just think that's too complicated um, theatrically. I think it's like we're watching her in her home. I mean, the, the, the somewhat interesting thing was, like, this was obviously in the works before now. This is a very, like, high production design thing that, that they have going. So it's not like they just, like, had this idea a month ago. But they basically tailored it a little bit now, given the fact that, like, kids are home and they're trying to tell the story. And, like, like I think this is sort of like the conversation we had last week. Like, this is this we're trying to make her so universal that like we are basically losing the the non-universality of her story right like the fact that she was in Amsterdam in the like it's just not it's just not right now and to see it on TV I don't know when she gets to Bergen-Belsen it turns from a vlog to a TikTok well she gets in those guys TikTok on the way to Auschwitz too soon then it's a collab I've learned that yeah, that's a collab. Yeah, and then there'll be a remix. You know, the thing is, like, I'm not angry about this, right? Like, I'm not, like, yelling. I don't think we all are. I'm just, like, I'm a little bit resigned. Like, is this how, is this the only way to connect to kids right now, to show them, like, this experience in a way that they themselves would experience it? Like, wh- why can't we just read the book? Right, I was just right. saying, what if there were, like, a 200-page book written at about a young adult level that you could give them that if they had, had like, well, six free hours, had, they had could only read she written something. Had only she left some kind of recollection behind, like a diary Mark, or Mark, something. I really, I like that you're, like, shaming people for not having read the diary of Anne Frank. You right. are on the record as not having read it yourself. Yeah, well, that's true. But I wrote a term paper on it. No. <laughs> I wrote a five-page term paper about it. The diary of Anne Frank is a diary written by Anne Frank. <laughs> she and I could be related, by the way. I'm a Frank. My great-great-great-grandfather was, was uh, William Frank. I guess I just think that this sells young people short. I mean, the fact that like th- this is how we think that we need to connect with them, that has to be wrong. Stephanie, this sells people short. This is really, it's the pinnacle of freaking stupidity. I'm sorry. This has precisely zero redeeming value to it. It's And also, let us watch it. Bring it to the United States. <laughs> right. I know. I so badly want to agree with Stop Liel. As soon as out. I can watch it in the United States, I'm going to. Liel, what you got? Take us out of News of the Jews. So I have the most charming thing that happened this week. Uh, although it might have been less last week because days just melt into each other. That's a big claim. Is it the most charming thing that happened in the world yeah. this yes. week? Yes, oh, absolutely. 
There's no, none no, no, more charming. This is, okay. this is this is the pinnacle. This is there's okay. nothing better than this because it, this is as it. you know some of the late night or I think at this point all of the late night talk shows uh, all have those cutesy little versions that they shoot from home and all the celebrities come from their own homes. So Jimmy Fallon on the Tonight Show had Hugh Jackman, not someone who is accused frequently of being a Jew. And Hugh Jackman, of all the things he could have done or talked about, this is a, a triple threat, a singer, a dancer, an actor. Instead, what he wanted to show Jimmy Fallon and share with the world is his deep abiding love for making, as he calls it, Hala. You can do everything, but what I asked you, you said you're into baking, so what, what, what are we doing today? Because I got some I'm going to do Hala. We're going to do some Hala bread. Okay. okay. Hala bread. It's really easy, but it looks a little impressive than just baking a loaf of bread. It's a long process. He showed Jimmy Fallon his hala bread braiding skills, mate, and they were amazing. He bakes a mean freaking challah. And this went on on national TV for like 14 minutes. How many strands? Three, four, six? Three strand, very traditionally. He had to teach Jimmy how to do it, so he took it like basic level with egg wash, with everything. I was really moved and impressed. And was it funny because like when you, I've done a challah, like a virtual baking thing and you have to like, you can't do it all at once, right? Like you have to start it and then you, or like on a cooking show, you pull out like the, the challah that's actually been sitting out for three hours rising. So how'd they, how'd they manage that? Did he have like several going? No, no. Jimmy Fallon interviewed Hugh Jackman while the challah was in the <laughs> oven for 25 minutes. And then he took it out of the oven uh-huh. and showed him the challah. It's amazing. And so where does he say he learned to, to, to do this? That's the most beautiful part. At no point does he say where he learned this, why this is his favorite thing. It's just as if it's normal the most thing. normal thing well, in the world. So the yep. funny thing is that like Jimmy Fallon is also making a holla. And I don't know if you watch his, but his is so bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the funniest thing to watch it. Um, but yeah. But guys, does that mean that if the holla goes mainstream, are they going to ruin it the way they ruin bagels? Well, holla bread, yeah. yeah like holla French great. toast. I mean, oh, come holla on, bread. Already... Yeah. Let him have No, it. I, I'm not ready to give that up. It's... It's, it's a step away from being served at Quiznos, guys. Like, we're almost there. <laughs> hey, crew, it's Josh again. Uh, do you remember we had A.J. Jacobs on a little bit ago and we gave him a homework assignment? Oh, yeah. Wasn't that to figure out how we're all related? Well, you know, Mark actually saying that he thinks he might be related to Anne Frank reminded me. And so I did actually go and check back in with A.J. A- and A.J. is is the kind of guy who takes a homework assignment seriously. A.J. did not mess around. And so what I'm going to do right now is actually play you guys the conversation I had with him. You ready? Yep. Okay, bring it. So, AJ Jacobs, last time you were on with us, we gave you a little homework assignment. Can you tell me a little bit about what Stephanie and I asked of you? You asked me to figure out how the three hosts of Unorthodox are related. Well, I got a 66, two-thirds on my assignment. Frankly, in in the current state of home education, that's a passing grade. (laughs) I was able to find Liel and Mark on the world family tree. Stephanie is still an international woman of mystery. But Liel and Mark are related. Liel is Mark's second great uncle's fourth cousin, third great nephew. So practically brothers. Practically. Is there anything (gasps) interesting on that line that goes between them? Did you find anybody cool or anything in there? Yeah, Mark, for instance, he's actually not too far from Albert Einstein. Albert 
is Mark's first cousin's wife's third cousin three times removed. So that's how he got that uh, high <laughs> IQ of his, although it was an in-law. Liel was a little more challenging, so <laughs> I was lazy and I stuck with Mark. Sorry, Liel. <laughs> but Mark is uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, uh, another podcaster, fellow podcaster. What that's the third great uncle's grandfather's wife's third great nephew's wife's great nephew's wife's great nephew. So that has a nice ring to it. My ears are currently spinning, trying to keep track of all that. Well, this is just one way to connect people. I mean, the beauty of Ashkenazi Jews is that we are all so closely related by blood that we're probably about seventh or eighth cousins on average. Thank you so much, AJ. Thank you, cousin. So... Mark Goop Oppenheimer, wow, congrats. Two luminaries on your tree. I, you know, I'm all the more furious that Gwyneth isn't returning my calls, but I can console myself with, with Liel, Achi, my brother. Did you know the Albert Einstein thing, Mark? I couldn't tell judging well, by your face. No. Also, when your grandpa's been married six times, there is nobody right. to whom I'm not related <laughs> that way. So, I, you know, no, I didn't know that. I'm just pleased to be related to Liel. That's much more exciting than being related to Albert Einstein, who, as everyone knows, had many <laughs> illegitimate children and thus is related to all of us. But Liel, uh, a life of abstemious monogamy and you know, and and virtue going back many generations, that we found a thread connecting us is is a blessing. If I can just repeat for posterity that relationship, yes, it please. is Liel is Mark's second great uncle's fourth cousin's third great nephew. What does that make you? Brothers. Um, that is amazing. And so I, I kind of want to say, since I'm a mystery on this tree, part of the reason was was that AJ asked me for any information about myself, like my grandparents' date of birth. And I sort of was just like, huh? I like the years my grand like I just was like, I'm a ch- horrible grandchild. I don't I don't know this off the top of my head. So what it actually sort of inspired is my new project, my new quarantine project, which is interviewing my grandparents, Grandpa Al, Grandma Seal. Um, so every night about eight or eight thirty, we do like an hour and a half on the phone where I basically like do this, but to them. That's really interesting to me because you are so cl- you were so beautifully close to your your family and including your grandparents, whom whom I've met and and am so fond of. It's interesting to me that like in my family my mother knows the birthdays and, you know, various trivia about people she's not even particularly close to. Like, that's one of the things that's part of the lore that gets handed down is like, like, I know without even thinking about it, that my grandmother was born November 30th, 1907. Like, that's just, I knew her, their birthdays. So like, do you not, is that sort of trivia no, not like part my grandma's, of the closeness? My grandmother's birthday is flag day. And we always laugh because she was, had the same birthday as Donald Trump. For our whole lives, we laughed about that fact. And now we don't laugh about it anymore. So it's not like I can't remember my grandparents' birthdays. I know when their birthdays are, but the birth year is just never attached to it for me. Like, it's just, I'm, I'm bad at math. But so, you know, I've been doing these interesting sessions with my grandfather and I, my grandmother are starting tonight. And, he, you know, he said his father was born in 1900. So it was always really easy to know how old his father was. But I don't know, I'm getting a lot of interesting family stories because just having these conversations every night and I don't know, I love doing it. That's amazing. I don't think I've talked That's to awesome. any of my grandparents for more than an hour and a half throughout their entire lives. But, you know, my grandfather said he's like, you know, I, I know a lot about my, I was close with my grandparents, but they all came to America as adults. He's like, I don't know much about their lives before that. And and it wasn't the type of time where you would just like sit on grandpa's lap and ask about the old country. Like it's, it's different now. And so he's, it's sort of, there's this nice sense of inter, interconnectedness as he yeah. tells me the funniest stories. So look, I mean, that's awesome. And what's also awesome is 
pretty soon you'll have some information for AJ to plug in to figure out how you're related to me and Liel. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Mailbox, got a letter in the mailbox, got a letter in the mailbox, mailbox. To the mailbox. Guys, you remember that a couple weeks ago we played that very funny version of Goodnight Moon chanted according to the Torah melody, the Torah trope. It was by this guy, Simi Cohen, who has since done Chicka Chicka Boom Boom according to Torah trope. By the way, on the web, there's also now a Sephardi trope version of Goodnight Moon because someone said it's Ashka normative to only have the Ashkenazi Torah melody to Goodnight Moon. And a little toe house and a young mouse and a comb and a brush and a bowl full of mush and a quiet old lady. Okay, so that was cool. But you know what was really cool was that you listeners in the J. Crew stepped up to do your own children's classics according to the Torah trope. Uh, Paula Tauger chanted Maurice Sendak's chicken soup with rice. Nice while slipping on the sliding ice to sip hot chicken soup with rice. Slipping one, slipping twice, slipping chicken soup with rice. 
In February, it will be. And then we also heard from longtime super listener Sue Parker Gerson, who I think just absolutely takes the kugel this week for her version of Pete the Cat by James Dean. It could not have made me happier. Have a listen. Pete the Cat put on his favorite shirt with four big, colorful, round, groovy buttons. He loved his buttons so much he sang the song. My buttons, my buttons, my four groovy buttons. My buttons, my buttons, my four groovy buttons. Pop. Oh, no. One of the buttons popped off and rolled away. How many buttons? That's super listener Sue Parker Gerson setting Pete the Cat to Torah Trope. Friends, send us Torah Trope children's books or anything else. 914-570-4869. Send mail to 914-570-4869 or write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Back in March, I sat down with Michael O'Laughlin. He's the host of America Media's podcast, Plague, Untold Stories of AIDS and the Catholic Church. I spoke with him about the history of gay Catholics and the AIDS epidemic. And this was back before the current COVID crisis. It was at the point where we weren't shaking hands, but we still were in our office meeting face to face. So you'll hear hints of that towards the end of the conversation. Our Gentile of the Week is Michael O'Loughlin. He hosts the podcast Plague, Untold Stories of AIDS in the Catholic Church. It's a podcast from America Magazine, which is also behind our favorite podcast, Jesuitical. Mike has covered Catholicism for more than a decade, and we are happy to have you here. Well, me. I'm happy to have you here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So this is tough because we love Ashley and Zach and Olga from Jesuitical. And now that I finally know how to pronounce that word correctly, it's like all of a sudden you guys have a new podcast. It's true. That we I need to listen to. a new podcast, <laughs> but this is the important one today. Plague, yeah. So you've been covering Catholicism for a while. What made you want to, first of all, dig into the story of AIDS in the Catholic Church and why a podcast? So I've been covering Catholicism for a while. But in addition to that, I also cover LGBT issues and how the Catholic Church relates to that. And I've been writing about that for almost a decade. And a lot of it had to do with how LGBT people find a place in the Catholic Church, because it's not always the easiest relationship. So I'm always curious, what did people who have been in the church for a while, who are LGBT, like, what have they learned from that experience, maybe who have decades over me? And I realized, even though I've been reporting on this stuff for a long time, I really didn't know this history around the Catholic Church and the AIDS crisis. That's when I started seeking out people who kind of lived through it or worked through it or lost people. I just asked, you know, what was that like? What was that history like? And I was shocked that a lot of them told me that they hadn't really talked about it in a long time, that they don't think younger people, like I'm in my 30s, I don't know much of the history, that they feel like there's all these lessons to pass on to people, but no one's asking. So it was this opportunity really to interview people. We ended up doing dozens of interviews, hundreds of hours of audio, and just kind of looking at what was it like to live during this time? What was it like to be Catholic during this time and to be someone who was part of the LGBT community? I think to a lot of people who might not be familiar with the Catholic world, you say, oh, this is so-and-so, he's a gay Catholic. Someone might say, wait, is that even possible? I mean, obviously, there are gay people in every community, but can you sort of go into a little bit about the identity of gay Catholics? Yeah, it's it's not always easy by any means. I mean, if people don't know, the Catholic Church can be pretty hostile to the LGBT community. Historically, gay people have felt persecuted by the church. In more recent memory, especially in this country, like you have the church really leading against same-sex marriage efforts. And that was in the early 2000s, and the LGBT community fell under siege then. And the part of the history I focus on during the AIDS crisis, you have this interesting dynamic where gay Catholics 
They see the gay community under attack from AIDS, but they see the Catholic Church kind of responding through hospitals and pastoral care. They don't know what to make of it because you have kind of activist groups who are targeting the church because of its anti-gay stances, but you also have like these nuns, the Sisters of Charity of New York, who are responding. So it's this really complicated identity. And I interviewed a lot of people who said that they were trying to figure out where they fit, like they had a foot in both worlds, and it was really not easy for them. And I think that that situation continues today for a lot of gay Catholics. You know, I cover the Jewish community in which there are sort of these dictates from on high, right? A rabbi will say something, but actually day to day in the community, things might be different. And so what I was really struck by was the fact that, yes, there are these church-wide stances against homosexuality, against condom use, but actually what you have are these, I mean, mostly nuns who sort of break the mold a little bit while still following church dictate. They find a way to help people. Could you tell us a few of those stories? That's a good comparison. There are, you know, official church teachings that ban the use of contraception that say gay people must remain chaste and celibate. But on the ground, it's a little different. So we have the Sisters of Charity at St. Vincent's Hospital here in New York, closed in 2010. But in the 80s, it became kind of a refuge for gay men who were dying from AIDS. And the sisters were bound by church rules, which said they couldn't give out condoms. The scientific community and medical community said that condoms were like one of the best ways to prevent the spread of HIV. So you had this clash that was set up. But what I found interesting about the sisters was they said, well, we have to make this work somehow. We're responding to this community in need. Here's what doctors say they need. Like, how can we make this work? So I wouldn't say they ignored the rules, but they worked within the framework to come to a solution that worked more or less for both sides. Another example is you have gay Catholics living or worshiping in parishes, and they find gay-friendly parishes where they can find a spiritual home during the AIDS crisis especially. So you have like the institutional church that's really coming down hard on the LGBT community, but then the parishes is a little different. So there is a little bit of a disconnect between like the official rules and what's happening on the ground. So speaking of parishes that are gay-friendly, can you tell us about Most Holy Redeemer in San Francisco's Castro district? That was a great reporting trip. I went out to San Francisco. I visited this parish right in the middle of the Castro. I mean, you have like the iconic theater and then around the corner is the parish. It's this big church and it played this interesting role where in the 80s, it was kind of a dying parish. It had been like a working class Catholic parish. But as San Francisco changed and became a little wealthier, a lot of the old timers kind of moved out because they couldn't afford it anymore. And then there was this period where the neighborhood fell into disrepair, actually. And you had a lot of members of the gay community moving in. And the parish, as a result, is like contracting because there's no Catholics there, they think. But then a couple of gay Catholics are looking for a church. They find this one right in the middle of their new community, but they see that it's kind of empty. So they talk to the priest and they say, why don't we like go out into the community? There are tons of gay Catholics here. They just don't feel welcome. So over the course of about a decade, it really revitalizes itself as a gay parish, kind of vibrant masses, big social components. And then AIDS hits and the community there, because they're organized and together, they think, how can we respond to this? And that's really when it hit its stride with its AIDS support group and going out and taking care of people when other people just wouldn't do it. I think it's a surprise to hear. I mean, it makes perfect sense that people would seek out religious houses, right, when such a crisis was crippling their community. So was the church on the whole welcoming? I mean, how do you square it in your mind? It's a really complicated question and one that I really wasn't able to answer even at the end of the series. Well, I've kind of left it open-ended for people to decide. You had individuals who were certainly very welcoming, willing to go out into the community and sort of say, what do people need? How can we help? You had sisters running hospitals who made sure that they responded medically. As an institution, I don't know. It, it seems like a lot of institutions failed in the 80s and 90s around HIV and AIDS. 
And while there were great stories about Catholics on the higher up level, it seemed like a sort of negative response. That's what people I interviewed told me. So the stories that we offer in the podcast are hopeful and inspiring. That was intentional. But also we set the scene like there was a lot of animosity between the gay community and church leaders. So we set that context so you can see just how heroic these people who responded well were. One of the most interesting episodes, I don't want to spoil everything for everyone listening, but you have your New York episode, you have your San Francisco episode, and then you go sort of to the heartland of the country where actually you're not in this big cosmopolitan city where there are gay communities. Yeah. uh, So it's uh, Belleville, Illinois. It's a small city, technically, about 40,000 people, kind of greater St. Louis, about five hours from Chicago where I live. And there was this small group of Catholic sisters who worked at a local hospital there. And they started to see some sick guys coming through, like young guys in their 20s and 30s. They didn't really know what it was. Eventually, they realized that it was HIV and AIDS, something they had read about kind of on the coasts. And there was one sister, Carol Baltashevitz, to her credit, she's a nurse, and she said, we don't know what we're doing. We need more education to take care of these guys, to help their families figure out what's going on. And there wasn't a whole lot of education in that small city for the sisters to use. So she and another sister, Mary Ellen Rombach, They had some contacts in New York. So they called up and said, we know what's going on in New York. I think this is going to happen here in Belleville. Can we come and stay with you and learn? So they kind of packed up and moved to New York City for six months. Carol had never been to New York. She decided she'd come and move. And New York in the 80s is not the New York of today, as people know. So it was kind of a rougher place. There was some challenges for her. And she threw herself into volunteering at St. Vincent's and St. Clair's, worked on AIDS helpline volunteered with what would become gay men's health crisis and just like learned a lot about the gay community and confronted her own biases too. That's what I find remarkable about her story. She moves home and opens an HIV and AIDS clinic. Again, someone who was in this system that really wasn't that welcoming to gay people, but said, I need to do what's right and step back, looked at her own biases and then did the right thing anyway. You share some listener messages on your final episode where people called in and told you what they thought about the show. I mean, What has the response been? Have you gotten any scary letters about how dare you be critical of the church? I know you're a reporter. This must be something you're familiar with. But has the feedback to the podcast been different in any way? We braced ourselves for some really negative feedback, and we got, like, none. So I don't know what that means. We know people are listening because we've gotten hundreds of messages. I think it shows, like, there's a hunger for these inspiring stories. There's a big LGBT Catholic community, but then that community also has family and friends who are part of the church as well. And I think sometimes examples of compassion on this issue are in short supply when it comes to the Catholic Church. So that we were able to put out six episodes with many characters who did the right thing and have some advice about what it means to be welcoming to LGBT people was really appreciated by people. And what I loved, too, was a lot of people I interviewed are older in their 60s, 70s, 80s, because we're talking history from 30 years ago now. And they have a lot of stories they said they haven't been able to share with young people. And I've gotten tons of response from young LGBT people who said that they didn't know this history and they feel connected to these people now. So being able to kind of create these like intergenerational audio friendships have been really meaningful. For me personally, at least, I have sort of my professional life as a Jewish journalist, right, where I cover Jewish issues and I work for a Jewish community. But then I also have my life, which has a spiritual component. And so those two things exist together. And so I'm curious how this experience has impacted both you as a journalist and you personally, if you don't mind me asking. It's impacted me personally quite a bit because I've been a reporter for a while now. So I'm always telling other people's stories. And as a good reporter, I try not to put myself into the story, right? But this was a different kind of project where I kind of set out on this mission. I am a gay Catholic and I wanted to hear what other gay Catholics learned about this dual identity over the last 30 years or so. 
So putting myself out there, being completely transparent about what I was doing with this, it forced me, as I say in the last episode, to go from talking about them in terms of LGBT Catholics, like what do they need, what do they want, talking about us, like what do we as an LGBT Catholic community need and want from the church. And that's actually been less scary than I thought it would be. The responses have been so personal, people sharing their own stories with me, their own struggles with me. I know it's been worth it. And has it changed your own relationship with Catholicism at all? You know, I I think if people were to criticize my reporting, my style of reporting in the podcast as well, it'd be that I tend to like seek out the positive stories in lieu of the more negative stories that I sometimes report on. But I think for me, it's made me more aware of the number of people who do the right thing and who respond with compassion and mercy in really difficult situations. So it's kind of expanded my universe in terms of like, who are the allies out there who exist? So I don't know that it's changed it, but it's certainly broadened my perspective on the possibilities for LGBT people in the church. So talking to you now, I feel like we have to note that we are in the midst at the beginning of what feels like a global health crisis with the coronavirus. And I know it's completely different, but are you thinking about this in the same way? I mean, is the has the church learned about how to deal with these things? Is the church mobilizing for how to help people? I know there isn't the cultural stigma necessarily, obviously, that HIV AIDS had, but are there lessons to be learned from this last sort of pandemic that took over American society? Like you said, there's a big differences, right? Like the stigma was a huge barrier to effective responses from government or pharmaceutical companies, and we're not really seeing that today. The other difference is the Catholic Church's healthcare apparatus isn't quite as strong as it was 30 years ago in this country. So while there still is very much a strong Catholic hospital network, it's not as embedded in the community as it once was. So in places like New York, there's not even Catholic hospitals anymore. So it's very different. But what I think you are seeing is Catholic healthcare today is especially strong when it comes to advocacy for people who don't have access to healthcare. So I'm curious to see how they'll use that kind of podium to talk about the need for time off from work to get vaccinated if there's a vaccine for this that comes, or just being able to not go out into public into large gatherings. And like people who have service jobs don't always have the luxuries to stay home and not work. So I am curious. I think they have an opportunity to really advocate for people who don't have the resources that we all have when it comes to protecting our health. As a fellow podcaster, I have to ask, were there stories that you had to edit out, things that didn't really make sense in the narrative? Is there something sort of amazing that you had to let go of? There were so many stories. I'm looking over at Eloise, who's in the room with us. She was a producer. And we went back and forth because I was like, we have hundreds of hours of audio. Let's just put it all in there. And, like, let's just do more no, episodes. No, no. <laughs> uh, in the end, it all came out perfectly and beautiful. But I'm trying to think of specific stories. There was this sister, Pascal Conforti, a pastoral care provider. So she worked at St. Clair's Hospital doing like HIV and AIDS outreach to patients there. And what I loved about her story, she's very no-nonsense. Like, I would ask her questions like, how did you feel about this? She's like, how did I feel? I just did my job. It was like very matter-of-fact, but I kept at it. And I interviewed people who knew her and who worked with her, and they all told me that her strength was she could connect with patients and listen to them in a way that doctors and nurses might not have the time to or maybe don't have the skills to. And she became something of an ally to the LGBT community at a time when Doctors were like just so busy trying to take care of patients that they didn't have time to listen to the concerns. And there's something to that. She was able to pass on to doctors and nurses what the real fears were in a way that made the healthcare better itself. So there's a lot of people like that, a lot of stories that didn't make it in, but might make it into the book that I'm writing on it. Oh, wow, a book. Yeah, there'll be a book following up, I think, coming out next year. That is amazing. Yeah. The thing that struck me so many times throughout the series is just what you said, is treating people like people, treating people with compassion. And, you know, you sort of paint the picture of 
hospitals where no one is talking to people who have AIDS. They're leaving meals outside their rooms. And you think in a hospital of all places, there should be a sense of compassion. I was really moved by the sisters. I mean, that's something that's a bit foreign to me as someone who isn't Catholic. Can you sort of explain their role in the Catholic world? Catholic sisters are really the backbone of the church's social justice ministry. So there were large numbers of young women who entered religious life after World War II in this country. So you had giant groups of Catholic sisters who were running Catholic schools, Catholic high schools, who founded and were running Catholic hospitals. And during the HIV and AIDS crisis, the numbers had diminished a bit, but there were still several hospitals that were run by Catholic sisters. So St. Vincent's here in New York, along with St. Clair's. And they were the ones who were making sure the hospitals were staying true to its Catholic mission. So that's kind of a dual thing where, one, it means following the rules about things like condoms, sexual morality. But the more important part, I think, for this story is making sure that they were taking care of the poor. So St. Vincent's is this like legendary hospital when it comes to AIDS care. And we interviewed one of the doctors who founded the AIDS clinic there, and he said the sisters were the ones who really made sure the hospital reached out to the homeless community. So homeless men especially were affected by HIV and AIDS early on and didn't have access to health care. And the sisters were the ones who said, like, look, we have to take care of this community. A lot of them were nurses. A lot of them were administrators. And they really are the ones, like, down in the trenches doing the work and who often don't get a lot of credit. That's why we went out of our way to make sure that this story was their story. I love that. And I think for someone who isn't necessarily part of the Catholic community, it was such a nice window into how things work on the ground and a look beyond church doctrine to how it played out day to day. What I really find interesting about sisters is they take the doctrine, they respect it, they're members of the church, but they're like the ones who are seeing how it plays out in the real world. So sometimes life is a little messier than it is when you're writing up a papal encyclical or some kind of church (laughs) teaching. And they're the ones to figure out like, okay, let's take the spirit behind it and apply it to the real world. So you have them dealing with families, really complicated family dynamics during the HIV and AIDS crisis and saying, okay, let's respect the fact that this man, young man dying in here has a partner who's another young man. And while they're not married and technically shouldn't be allowed in the same room together under like federal law and then hospital rules, let's make this work somehow, even if it's really complicated for them and for the family. So there's countless examples like that where they just did the right thing, motivated by their faith often. So like any Gentile of the week, we invited you to come here with a question. Usually you get three of us and now it's just me. So what do you got for me? Okay, so we are recording this on Super Tuesday. So we are like in the thick of politics season right now. And I'm giving a talk next month at a Jewish Catholic dialogue dinner in Chicago about the role of people of faith in the public square. So I know all about the Catholic stuff, like what the Catholic Church teaches about how Catholics are supposed to behave when it comes to politics. I'm curious. What is that? Will you just loop me in? Basically, the church here avoids endorsing candidates or taking specific stances on really tough political questions, but they generally say Catholics need to be involved. We have a moral duty to be in the public square, to vote, and it should be motivated by the tenets of the Catholic Church. So they release like a document every year saying this is what we teach and believe and apply it to specific political races in your area. So there is a moral obligation to be involved and to vote. I'm curious what Judaism teaches, and I know that's like a very broad question, (laughs) but like what do you No, you've come to the right place. So the main structural difference, right, is that We don't have a pope, right? We have a bunch of different denominations. Each of them have their own rabbinical council, but it's not like they're issuing edicts in the same way necessarily. They'll help get rabbis, conservative rabbis appointed to conservative synagogues and the reform rabbinate will help place people. But the hierarchy is a little bit different. So when you're a rabbi in a synagogue, it's kind of up to you. I mean, yes, you have a synagogue board and then you have your your rabbinical council that you're part of, but it's a little bit up to you in a way. So at Tablet, we've, every time the high holidays are around at election season, we always do this thing where we ask 
rabbis, what are they going to do? Are you going to talk about politics? Are you going to avoid it completely? Are you going to make veiled references? And it's something that a lot of rabbis have to grapple with, right? Because you lead your flock in a lot of ways, but do you want to lead them towards a specific candidate? And of course, it's entirely more complicated now that we have Jewish candidates in contention for nominations now. So, you know, I think it's the same idea that, yes, the tenets of Judaism tell me that I should be active. You know, this is idea of tikkun olam, which is repairing the world, which has become a little bit of a cliche. You know, I say like, oh, I'm doing this because of tikkun olam. But the idea is there's an argument to be made that there is a real social justice impetus within Judaism, that you should help people in need. You should help try to repair the world. And then, of course, you'll go to synagogues where politics is never discussed because people want to go to synagogue to commune with God, right? They don't necessarily need to know that you're marching with this cause or that. So there is an interesting split a little bit between congregations and communities that embrace politics and embrace activism as well and more traditional religious institutions that teach religion. Do I get a follow-up question? Oh my God, yes. (laughs) Okay, so I'm curious. A dynamic we've seen playing out for the past six or seven years with Pope Francis is he's trying to expand what it means for a Catholic involved in the public square, like what issues are important. So with him, we've seen concern for poor migrants, talking about the environment a lot. He's been a little critical of the United States Catholic hierarchy for focusing so intensely on abortion and same-sex marriage, opposition to both. And I'm curious, like, are there certain issues that dominate Judaism when it comes to politics and public square, or is it kind of run the range depending on where you worship? It's a little bit more siloed in a way, right? I've been on a book tour with my co-host, and we go to different synagogues. We went to one in Boston, and they have this big green team, this green initiative to reduce all single-use plastics in their synagogue. And so they are pulling from some Jewish teaching about that, but there's nothing that says they have to do that. And then there are other communities in places close to the border where immigration activism and immigration reform has really, really been part of their religious worship. I mean, I know some younger LGBT Jews for whom queer activism has become a real core part of their Jewish identity. And so it's really, really interesting, I think particularly among younger generations, about you won't see the thing that like, oh, I'm Jewish and then I'm also this. They'll say like, I'm gay and Jewish. And that is like my queer identity reinforces my Jewishness and the other way around. And so I think there's a a new openness to adding more to our identity. I mean, that's not really an answer. It comes down to the fact that there's no pope, right? Like it sort of is the same, you know, every community can choose based on where they come from. I mean, there definitely are. I mean, basically there's not as much of an emphasis on abortion the way there is in the Catholic Church because a lot of Jewish teachings are much more relaxed about that and the well-being of the mother is paramount. But then, of course, in more religious communities, it changes. And so, yeah, there's a lot of Jewish reproductive activism. I mean, there's sort of it's sort of across the board in a lot of different ways. But I wouldn't say like these three causes are Jewish necessarily. Yeah, no, and it makes sense. I mean, you can have a liberal pope, conservative bishop, liberal pastor. (laughs) So all the politics, by the time it gets down to where you are at the parish level, it might be very different than how it started off. So that makes sense that it just really depends. I mean, there's no like clear guidance on specific issues or candidates. But it's kind of like Holy Redeemer, right? In the Castro, it really is part of a whole infrastructure of Catholicism, but actually it adapted to fit its community. And I imagine that's what's happening with a lot of Catholic churches today. Very much so. In fascinating ways, too. I mean, there was a bishop in Michigan who asked his priests not to vote in primaries because he didn't want the politics kind of infiltrate what was happening. So there's a really fascinating look on the local level, what's happening in Catholic places compared to the institutional level. That's just very different from what I think we are used to. And so do you see that changing at all? I mean, are there young people who are like, why do I have to listen to what some guy in some building somewhere is saying about my life? Oh, yeah. There's always this question every year of like, what is the Catholic vote? And if you break down like voters who identify as Catholic, they tend to support the winner. But really, it's just like Catholics are Americans and they're split and, you know, the politics are polarized. So I think people are kind of 
not paying as much attention to the institutional church as they are to maybe what they've learned in terms of like the tenets of their faith and how they apply it to their own politics. Mike O'Loughlin, thank you for being here. Um, How can our listeners start listening to Plague and follow along with your work? They can visit americamag.org slash plague and all the episodes are there as well as on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever they listen to podcasts. Uh, And if they want to follow my work, they can follow me on Twitter. I'm tweeting all the time. So it's uh, Mike O'Loughlin. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is fun. That was my conversation with Michael O'Loughlin. His podcast is called Plague, Untold Stories of AIDS and the Catholic Church. Liel, you also did a cool interview recently, right? I had the distinct pleasure of interviewing one of the living musicians that I admire most. Uh, This is for a new series that Tablet has launched. It's called Tablet Live. You can find out more about it at bit.ly slash tablet live. We're having interviews with senators and musicians and writers and, and a lot of other people you may want to hear from. But our first distinct guest was the great Yif Barzilai, who is an Israeli-born, American-raised frontman singer-songwriter of this band called Clem Snide that I've loved for 20 years now. And honestly, guys, this is the greatest American rock band that you've never heard of. They are astonishingly great. Their songs are kind of beautiful, funny, spiritual, haunting, um, everything that you need for a time like this. And Eve was kind enough to give us uh, an exclusive listen to their brand new song called Roger Ebert, which is the very true story of the late great film critic's last words, which turns into a really terrific meditation on life after life and everything in between. Have a listen. No words to say 
that he loved her so much His hand seemed to pass through whatever it touched And credits that rolled listed all of God's names As images floated away from their frames From their frames Did you know Did you know these were Roger Ebert's dying words? It's all an elaborate hoax. If you like this, you could hear a lot more and tune into future events at bit.ly slash tablet live. Mazel tovs, Liel. Yes, my mazel tov this week goes to the very talented man who wrote this beautiful song that you just heard on this year's show, Eve Bars Alive, Clem Snide. The new album is Forever Just Beyond. It just came out. There is no better soundtrack of hope, of heartbreak, of magic, of loss to play as you are quarantined in your home. Stephanie, do you have a Mazel Tov this week? I have a shout out to listener Madison Clare, who we got to meet um, at our New York City Shabbat dinner in January, which feels like 100 months ago and not just four. She's getting married soon. And so we sort of had to push a bunch of that stuff back. But she did register for a copy of the newest Jewish encyclopedia for her bridal shower, which I love. And her husband is undergoing a conversion. And part of the homework her husband was assigned in his conversion class was listening to our podcast. Uh, the conversion episode specifically. So I'm very, very happy. We're really, really keeping it in the fam. Amazing. Mazel tov to the Jew and the Jew about to come home to the Clara household. A couple mazel tovs for me. First, I'd like to turn over one of my mazel tovs to a listener who called in with a mazel tov to some Jewish booksellers. Hey, J. Crew. My name's Alana Sandberg, and I just wanted to share a little bit of exciting news amidst all this chaos. My parents, Dina Mardell and David Sandberg, own an independent bookstore in Cambridge, Massachusetts called Porter Square Books, and they won Publisher Weekly's Bookstore of the Year. So I hope you take this as a little bit of encouragement to shop locally if you can, and check out their store online at portersquarebooks.com to order. Mazel tov to them, and keep reading, everyone. So big mazel tovs to them in my home state of Massachusetts, and also a mazel tov to my second cousin once removed husband's sister, Shira Hanau, who has just started a new job as a reporter for Jewish Telegraphic Agency, uh, which finds so many of the stories that make up news of the Jews. Unorthodox brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. To book us or advertise with us, email producer Josh Cross at jcross, that's cross with a K, at tabletmag.com. Why not go to iTunes and rate us with five stars or more if you can figure out how? It helps other people find our show. You need to wear and carry unorthodox? Maybe doing some early Shavuos shopping? Go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt and find our shirts, mugs, and onesies. Follow us on Instagram or on Twitter. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sara Fredman Ader. Our assistant editor is Robert Scaramuccia. Our Esther, our Esther work is by artwork. <laughs> 
Our artwork is by Esther. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Marcy Oster of the Jewish Telegraphic Agency for finding so many of those crazy stories we share with you in News of the Jews. And we come to you from Argo Studios, which is mastering the art of the nude quarantine selfie. Shalom, friends. Hey, Ben Cullen, can you bring me the Brita? No? Please?